There were so many people making the jump into high tech. They failed to realize that there was nothing but tech in manufacturing. I like going where other people aren't. I like hitting it where they ain't. I like doing the contrarian. And at the time, that was manufacturing. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Okay, it's episode 148. Today, you're going to hear why manufacturing businesses should be boring. Our guest this week is Mark Bowers, the executive director of St. Louis Makes, a Missouri-based 501c3 nonprofit that helps emerging and mid-sized regional manufacturers drive sales expansion through both product innovation and the identification of new market opportunities. Now, Mark's going to tell you more about this in a second, but one of the reasons I've wanted to have him on this podcast since basically this show started is because of his very blunt and at this point in the episode, possibly eyebrow-raising mantra that manufacturing should be boring. You know, on a show where we talk about how great the manufacturing industry can be and how cool the technology is, this might sound like the antithesis of this podcast, but I think you'll understand where Mark is coming from here in just a bit because here are three things you can expect from today's episode. First, we start by talking about St. Louis and its infrastructure, and we do tie this into manufacturing a little bit. Like usual, this conversation goes beyond the city limits of St. Louis and applies to lots of other regions as well. Second, once we get more into manufacturing, you'll hear what old school manufacturing entrepreneurship looks like, why this might be back on the rise, and there's some great tips on how to objectively focus on the areas that are best for you and your business. Finally, we get some great sage advice, life advice, I'll say, that's almost completely outside the realm of manufacturing, so stick around for that as well. As always, if you want to learn more, you can do that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 148. That'll take you straight to this episode. And speaking of this episode, if you learn something from it, if you have a top takeaway on how you can be running your business based on some of the advice you hear from Mark, well, hey, share that in a quick post on social media, on LinkedIn, wherever you go. Again, the link manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 148 will link you and anyone else you want to share this episode with up to this podcast. Anyway, with that, it's time to head to St. Louis to meet up with Mark Bowers. Well, hey, it's exciting to have you here, Mark. Wanted to do this, I mean, it was probably three years ago I first emailed you, probably when this was getting off the ground, probably right before the pandemic, if I had to take a guess. Pre-pandemic, it was. I went back and checked. Wow. I looked. I looked at all of my notes. Well, hey, we're here now. We're uh, we're at Cortex here in, in St. Louis. Actually, describe the spot where we are right now, because this is an important part of the the tech and manufacturing scene here in St. Uh, Louis. So we're in the CET building, which mm-hmm. is a part of the Cortex neighborhood. It's one of the buildings that is uh, has some space in it that's managed by CIC. It's a co-working facility, and uh, there are a lot of classrooms in here. So that's really where the overlap with manufacturing comes. We've done a lot of mostly entrepreneurship programming focused through the Square One program that Cortex runs. I've done that, and I've, I've always taught in that in that class the uh, entrepreneurship track for manufactured goods and, and products. So that's where we are. So I, I've done an episode around here before at a at a famous bar called the the Scottish Arms. I think it's famous anyway. If you were picking the watering hole today, where if we weren't doing this at at ten a.m. on a Wednesday, where would where would we be having a beverage, having this conversation? That is a really good question. So I don't know that there's like a specific answer that I could give you. Like say, hey, it's the Scottish Arms. What I could do is describe it to you. So okay. it would probably be someplace that was near a business park or an industrial park, a manufacturing park. And yeah. it would probably be the sort of place that, you know, you could see anybody after work. The sales team might be there. The production leads and the, and the floor guys might be there. Be the sort of place where when somebody from Clayton called and said, hey, we should go to lunch, you intentionally picked this place because you knew that they would stand out with their crisp starched white shirt mm-hmm. and not stand out in a, like, you know, good sort of way, but, you know, not trying to bust chops on anybody or do anything on the bust chops on anybody, but that would be the vibe. That would be the feel. And there are a lot of places like that that I know in St. Louis where I can hide, so. Name, name that's one of them. where we would be. Uh, g- that's give me one specific. Where we would be. 
oh man, uh, I do not. Uh, well, you know, O'Connell's would be like a really good example. Love right O'Connell's. off the freeway. That would yeah. be that would be the sort of place where like anybody could show up. You could get anybody. Like, you got manufacturing hidden all over the city of St. Louis. And you get those guys pop in there all the time, right? But it's like old school food. You're there for the food, but half of what you're buying is the environment, the atmosphere, mm-hmm. the other people you're going to run into. So that's really that's really the place. And there's no, you're not going to you're not going to accidentally think that you're in downtown Clayton while you're there either. You know you can still do business old school style. So that would be a, an example of the type of place that. that that we could be found. So o- O'Connell's has one of the best burgers around. That's exactly what I was thinking when yeah. you said, hey, I'm like, well, you know, actually I've been over there for burgers for a while. So, you know, I was thinking O'Connell's would be it. Well, let's say we're hanging out at O'Connell's. We're having burgers and someone asks you, it's like, Hey Mark, what, what is it you do? What is, what is St. Louis makes? What's your, what, what is your involvement in the manufacturing scene here? How do you answer that? If you're having a pint from Schlafly and a burger at O'Connell's. Okay, so uh, that's a good question. So my starting point on that would be St. Louis makes a 501c3 nonprofit. Our focus is on peer-to-peer education. Our target is privately owned, operated, and controlled manufacturing companies under about $100 million in revenue. And our focus is on what those boring corporate areas would be called product management, new product development, and business development. Or as I say to people, how do you make more of it? How do you make it more profitably? And how do you find new people to profitably sell it to? The, we have three what I call pillars of service delivery. So those are education and training which is all of this stuff is, is uh, kind of dark. We don't, we do the antithesis of what they teach you to do at UMSL. We don't go and advertise what we're doing. Very little of what we do is publicly available. It's mostly private invitations. So we'll do events. Uh, education and training is, is all private that you might have somebody that says, Hey, Chris, you know, we're, we're going to be entering this new channel or we're dealing with this new buyer. Or we're creating this new product. And there's this one element of that, that I just don't have any experience in, or I can't get right. And I might say to you, Hey, Chris, you know, I got a guy, you know, let's, let's, let's set something up. So you have a chance to work through things in a non-competing peer to peer sort of environment without a lot of outside influences from the industry trying to, trying to, trying to crush in on you. The other things that we do are events. When we do public stuff, it tends to be events where there's a mass market, sort of a cattle call and everybody shows and it really showcases the industry. And then the last thing that we do is we do on-site original economic development research in partnership with Professor Sarah Coffin at St. Louis University. And that gives us a chance to go into the office of the owner, have a one-on-one interview, and then get to see the plant and understand very intimately what the issues that that company is facing are. And we sort of have a chance to create behind the scenes information that is not readily available through like a census bureau or other government database. So that's a long winded answer, but that's what we do. Almost all of it has no, it, it, it's the exact opposite of the, the podcasting space. There's no pre-social, there's no post-social. We just do it and we're targeting a very small audience. We're the only organization of our kind that I know of in the country that does that and the only one in the nonprofit space that is actually led and all the volunteers come from industry. So I have another question, just set, setting us back to O'Connell's a little bit. And this might be the type of question where the answer makes someone like spit their beer out on accident, the, the burger falls out of their mouth. I want you to explain a concept that that kind of drew me to you and was the, the main reason I wanted to do this interview initially. You believe that manufacturing and businesses should be boring. So what is what does that mean? Give us give us the preview because we'll dive into it in more detail later. They should be completely boring in the sense that there are always going to be surprises at the marketplace there's actually you can't get away from those. But I absolutely hate surprises. So everything else, everything that I can touch, I want to take the surprises out of. I want to be able to have something that I have a reasonable level of comfort in the pro forma and in my projections for the market. And to me, that's just old school, basic block and tackle boredom. And there's nothing wrong with it as long as it cash flows. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. This is this is the topic we're going to explore today. But before that, I do want to get to know you a little bit more. We were chatting uh, at the start of this conversation. You're from Modesto, California. World famous finish. Modesto, California. Yeah. Central Valley, breadbasket of California. I'm, I'm familiar Truth. with it. <laughs> I did. I spent more of my time out there in the Bay and in the mountains when I was out in California. But uh, nevertheless, I, you know, what what drew you, let's talk about manufacturing first. What, what drew you to manufacturing? What's your background that got you here? 
So there's a quote that I really like from a baseball hall of famer from way back in the twenties, Wee Willie Keeler. And Wee Willie was being chased down the street as the story goes. I don't know if this is true because I wasn't born and my parents weren't born. It was a long time ago. Being chased down the streets in New York by a sports reporter who said, Willie, 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 how do you win baseball games? And as the story is recounted in baseball lore, he wheels around, cigar in mouth, looks at the sports writer and says, son, you hit it where they ain't. And I think one of the things that was appealing to me about manufacturing was that there were so many people making the jump into high tech. They failed to realize that there was nothing but tech in manufacturing and it wasn't cool. So I like going where other people aren't. I like hitting it where they ain't. I like doing the contrarian. And at the time that was manufacturing. Now you've got all these people rushing back in and I'm like, dude, this is like literally the oldest industry in, in the country. I mean, like we were bounded as a nation and grew up around what ultimately became manufacturing supremacy. This is not new. And, and you just mentioned there's a lot of tech ingrained into manufacturing yep. as well. So I think it's just, you know, I, I feel like someone was telling me the other day, people go where the money is, right? You know, 80s, 90s, there was a lot of people going to finance, 2000s, uh, 2010s, people going to software. I think we're just on the cusp of this like manufacturing resurgence right now. I think that it has not had the attention that's been due for a long while. If you look at like historical uh, lists of, you know, like the Forbes 400, you know, wealth fortunes that were created, historically, most of the new money came out of different segments in manufacturing. That was like the fastest or one of the best paths in in back in the day. You know, that practically disappeared for 30 years while everybody chased tech. And that's awesome. And, and there was good money to be made. And I'm not saying that that was a bad move or anything. But you got to figure when everybody else is chasing tech, it's like, you know, do you want to be in a ballpark that's got more people stuffed into it than fit? And every single one of them went to a high fancy school and has access to all kinds of capital on Silicon Valley and, and, and New York? Or do you want to do something that's maybe a little bit more undercover because nobody's paying as much mind to it? I think you've got great opportunities to do just that in manufacturing, especially with some of the smaller manufacturing companies. I was talking to a guy recently and he said, he goes, Mark, he goes, he goes, I see the world in, in a couple of different buckets. And we've started to look at the world this way and, and through St. Louis Makes as well. You know, under five million bucks, you might have decent margins, but it's still, figuratively speaking, being run off of spreadsheets. You you, you can't go do a, multi, a multi-million dollar SaaS implementation. You're a five million dollar a year firm. Right. Up to about 30 million bucks a year in revenue. You know, once again, this is not science. This is just an opinion, but I love it because the story really resonates. Up to 30 million bucks in revenue. Everybody knows you in the region except nobody knows you outside of the region. You sell $30 million and $1, and all of a sudden you've got all these friends in Chicago and New York. Yeah, you know, so, probably California too. Yeah, but but the point is, is that like up to $30 million bucks or even up to $100 million bucks, you know? I mean, like you're small in the eyes of some of these large coastal megalopolises, and, and that is not an insignificant amount of money. Well, you could do something really meaningful with that. It, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying that there's huge opportunity there. It's just not as Hollywood red carpet as we're used to in the tech space. Well, we're we're going to go back to this $30 million type comment, right? Because I think that's a lot of the companies that you're focused on, those businesses, the cash flow that investors on the coast aren't necessarily paying attention to. But a smart entrepreneur, let's say here in the center of the country, could really take advantage of as well in running a business like that. So let's maybe, I'm going to go back to the Modesto comment, because this is really the question I was going to ask after that, is what drew you to St. Louis then, right? So I had, working with a guy that I knew since fifth grade, had founded a company that needed to be centrally located, and that's that's what got me transferred into St. Louis, ultimately with another firm. We started that company, and St. Louis was, uh, you could get anywhere in the country on a truck, on a on a, on a a flatbed, on a rail car uh, from St. Louis faster than anywhere else. So that's, that's what made sense for us. It's a weird thing, though, about St. Louis as an expat, is that everybody that's from here takes it for granted. And they don't see all of the really high quality stuff. And they, the, I've been told that it's one of the hardest markets to get people to move to. And it's an almost impossible market to get people to move out of because the, the St. Louis Metro, just kind of like the industry that we're talking about, plays its cards close to its vest. And while you've got all of these great reasons to be here as a, a tourist or as a manufacturer, even as a resident, like, nobody really brags about them. Yeah, I... Uh... I mean, I I tell people all the time, like I'm house hunting right now up, you know, north in Milwaukee. But I look at the housing stock and just things like that in St. Louis. Like this was built to be a grand city. Like you couldn't, 
it was before like you could make stuff purposely crappy, if you will. Right. <laughs> so like ever like the bones of this city, I've got a buddy named Andrew Crow from here as well that talks about that. Um, just like there's a lot of infrastructure here. I'm I'm wondering when St. Louis is gonna have another boom at some point. I mean, I think that St. Louis has been successful in spite of itself. I think if you look at the bones of the city from way back in the day, the city, I've been told at the time of the World's Fair in 1904, whenever that was around there, was the fourth most moneyed city in the United States. So the infrastructure that we see is the kind of infrastructure that you see today being built in places like Seattle. The difference is, is that St. Louis never tore it out. It now has the patina of age, and they're very serious institutions. So people from St. Louis say, oh, well, you know, we got a botanical garden. And then when you look at the facts behind the, the, you know, hey, we got a botanical garden, you realize this is a research institution that has a higher percentage of their staff with PhDs than even any of the universities in town. I mean, like, those are the little gems that are here in St. Louis that exist on a global level. You know, when the Botanical Garden hires a replacement as their CEO and director, they literally pull someone from European academia. Mm-hmm. So St. Louis is full of institutions like that. Like even in manufacturing, you, you know, I know I'm wearing, a, I'm wearing a state tech shirt, but you look at Rankin and I took somebody in there just to kind of showcase the place one time. And they're looking around and, and they're looking at the building, the, the original administration building, walk in, eyes go up towards the ceiling. And the first thing they say is, is this all marble? Yeah. Because it was built to last. But yeah. it's the sort of thing that like literally you couldn't even afford to replicate now. So we've got institutions like that that are built like that, hidden all over the metro. And we just play our cards close to our chest. We don't brag enough. So this question just popped into my mind as a result of it. Why is it that cities like St. Louis don't brag about that or don't publicize those type of things, right? There's like I feel like there's so much on the coast, just talking about how great we are. People are thinking bigger than the cities that they're in. But St. Louis, and I think it's representative of a lot of Midwest cities, right? I don't, whether it's imposter syndrome, whether it's just the nature of the folks there, why do people keep their cards close, close to their chest? I think that there's that sort of Midwest reserve. You know, I think there's also this sense that, you know, it's not 1904 anymore. So, you know, we're not Seattle. The weird thing is, is that when you look at the actual numbers and you look at where manufacturing indexes as an industry in the city of St. Louis, you realize that we over-index in a way that strongly suggests we're, we're, we're more workable than a Chicago. I'm not throwing shade. It's just a, a much bigger city. Like you, mm-hmm. you're going to spend more time on the freeway. That's all there is to it. So of that not Chicago-sized cities in the United States, this is to your point earlier, this is a city that was built on a grandiosity that maybe never re- reached the same level from a population standpoint, but is absolutely perfect now. It's a little too small to kick off the bragging rights that you're talking about. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got that infrastructure in play. You've got what you need to really make it great. You don't, you don't need bragging rights for that. You just need to figure that out as another company or as a business owner and come here and buy something or found something. Yeah. I mean, like that works to your advantage. Well, let's talk about this then, or maybe we'll, we'll go back to the, the kind of the central point of today's interview. How are you seeing a new wave of manufacturing entrepreneurship arise in St. Louis around these cash flow businesses that you talk about that aren't necessarily attractive to the coast per se? I think I'm talking to these companies that are under 30 million a year in revenue, right? How are yeah. you seeing this rise here? So I think that you've got a lot of companies that have been around for a long time. We have yeah. more manufacturing companies than, you know, on a per capita basis than other cities that are are, are are our size. So you've got, you've just basically, you've got more stock to, to, to pull from. The way that that's playing out entrepreneurially is either you have a baton pass where somebody at a really small firm just says to their, their senior partner, you know, hey, you know, You've been working for me for 10 years. I'm going fishing. And oh, by the way, I'm, I'm staying at the fishing house because I'm retiring and that's all I'm going to do going forward. So now you've got somebody who's maybe got 10 years experience in the industry. They're a 30-something. And all of a sudden, like it or not, if they want that business to grow, congratulations and surprise, you're an entrepreneur. So it, it lacks the Hollywood red carpet that a lot of what we call out as entrepreneurship has. But I would argue that it's more relevant as entrepreneurship because it's old school, it's basic block and tackle, and it's using existing assets to build and to grow. Mm-hmm. So, like that would be my thing. I, I think through, I'll just throw this in really quickly. I think through one of the pro, pro, projects that we did with Professor Coffin at SLU, 
we were talking to a lot of different business owners and we came to realize that back in the day, I mean, think about that. It could have been as recently as a generation ago. Like if Chris owned a business and Mark said, hey, Chris, you know, I want a job. Chris hires Mark. I'm working for you. And I say, hey, Chris, teach me how to run this other machine. I get promoted. I got a crew. And we come to you someday and we say, hey, Chris, you know, you know, teach me a little bit about more about the company. Can I go on a sales call? Can I go to a trade show? Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, teach it. I mean, you would have taught me how to run a business before, and neither of us would have said, well, you know, in order to make this work, we need to run through the regional chamber and have a bunch of people with law degrees tell us whether or not we're entrepreneurs, because that's not, that's not the way it works. Yeah. It's low key. It's below the radar screen. It's in non-Hollywood appeal industries. Someday, maybe I would have come to you and said, hey, Chris, I think we should make these as well. And I would have had a completely boring trinket and you would have said, ah, oh, man, that's out of scope for us. But you know what? I got a lot of confidence in your ability, Mark. Why don't you and the guys start a company? We'll put you in the in the same facility. We'll, we'll give you some shared resources and I'll be your first investor. And that's literally how it worked. It's an oversimplification, but you get the general idea. We don't do that now. We go to government programs and we go downtown or to a regional chamber and we find ways to officially be anointed as entrepreneurs. Like if you own a manufacturing business, you're an entrepreneur by default, unless you're just trying to pat, uh, tread water. So if like if I'm hearing you right, it's it's more about just doing the work, getting into it, learning the business, being there at this small mid-sized yeah. manufacturer. Find one or two new things that you could do. Find one or two new ways to do them. And sometimes it's literally that simple. Yeah. And the reason, because if you have a smaller firm, you're big enough to be a, a viable entity, but you're small enough that you're in that weird tweener space that you and I have talked mm -hmm. about before. You know, you're, you're between being acquirable and you're already too big not to have a lot of heartburn if you just lock the door and say, hey, we're closing business. Yeah. So like you're doing a few million bucks a year. Like there's not a good exit strategy for that space as a generalization. It's it's tougher in that below $10 million a year space. If you can find your way into one of those firms and you can find a way to make that work, it's not that that firm is already so big that a couple of small tweaks in terms of who you're targeting, how you're doing it, what you're using to do it could show huge upgrowth or up, upswings in, in growth. Growth. I mean, like you could be adding on any one of those metrics, hundreds of thousands, if not a million, million change in, in revenue, you know, improve the profit margins. I mean, it's not the sort of thing that's going to get you acquired by a large or company. Sure. But it's a starting point that works out really well for you and your neighborhood. That's for sure. Yeah. So uh, a couple things there. You mentioned like it could be as simple as learning one or two new things, right? I think that's great advice for anyone out there that's listening, whether they're in a big company, small company. That's just good career advice in general. You're learning the business by doing more things, even if it's not in your immediate job description. We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. Are you looking to make your maintenance department more streamlined, reliable, and profitable? Then check out Traction. Traction integrates condition monitoring IoT sensors in an asset management software to create the most complete maintenance ecosystem on the market. They're on a mission to empower frontline workers, the backbone of our economy, with their combination hardware-software solution. To learn more about Traction, head to Traction.com. If you want to hear more about what this team is all about, check out episode 127 featuring their founder, Igor Marinelli. There, you'll hear the full story behind Traction, but more importantly, you'll hear why Igor truly believes that maintenance leaders are the industrial champions that are bringing the future of machine monitoring to life. He shares why frontline teams are at the center of industrial innovations and how to move past proof-of-concept projects and actually implement new ideas. Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 127 to listen and learn about traction today. And now, back to today's episode. You know, the other thing that, that jumps out that I have to ask is, can you paint a picture as to what one of these like under 30 million a year manufacturers looks like. I think in the past we've talked about it could be a secondary or tertiary supplier to a company like Boeing, for example. Yeah. Can you paint a picture of what some of these are like just so people can visualize it? So it could be a supplier to a much larger company or a very consolidated or re very regulated or regimented industry like Boeing and or aerospace, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe you've not been on all of the jobs, you've stayed much narrower, but you've got the capabilities, or maybe with just adding another piece of equipment, you could bid on a much broader breadth of jobs, or maybe even just opening the door to another large supplier, you could be a part of some of their contracts. So there's growth there, and that growth is, is on the sales side. You can do something completely and totally modern and say, oh, well, you know, we've got all these modern tracking 
marketing tools and, you know, we're going to implement this and that's how we're going to reach people. Or you could do something completely old school and it just literally pick up the phone because it's not a lot of people you need to connect with. Mm-hmm. Just say, hey, you know, here, I'm looking at doing something. I'm doing a little research project. Is there any opportunity to sit down and, and, and talk? You'll find your way into whatever that is. Another example, other yeah. end of the spectrum, it's not all driven by relationships and ties to large companies like like a Boeing or whatever. You could have a small shop that maybe is just doing metalwork. You know, maybe you're doing fabrication, you're doing some assembly, you know, maybe a little bit of machining, a lot of welding, that sort of thing. If there's an opportunity to create a product that you could launch slowly as a side project for that firm into an industry. You know, like you start making some attachments for the lawn and garden industry. Maybe not even consumer-based. Could be for landscape contractors. So now you don't have to go to all of the trade shows. You don't have to connect with every consumer on the planet. You literally just need to connect with a few distributors and dealers in the landscape construction space. You know, boom. Now you've got something that's balanced between your regular fabrication work and you've got something that's balanced with product work. I mean, there are a lot of different paths that you could take to map that out, I guess, is the answer to your question. Those are just two examples. Yeah. So let's, um, let's say I wanted to do this, right? Let's just use me as an example. Like I'm, I want to buy a manufacturing company that I can run as a good cash flow business for myself so that I can spend my time traveling in Europe, fishing at a lake house on the weekend, things like that. And obviously that's nothing that happens overnight. Before I ask you the steps to do that, let me ask this. Do you see a big opportunity like across the country right now for this to come up? Because I'm just visualizing there are probably a lot of these cash flow businesses out there, these small manufacturing companies that don't really have a succession plan right now. Is yeah. am, am I making this up that there, there's, there could be a large opportunity for this in the near future? I'm just curious what the the necessity of the situation is right now. I think that there is opportunity there. I think that opportunity is... You know, there's great opportunity in the manufacturing space as a bullseye, but I think there are a couple of rings out from the bullseye so that you could have any kind of an industrial company that supplies or is predominantly dependent on or connected or tied to the manufacturing industry. And I think the same metrics would apply. You you, you could be a distributor or a sales, uh, you know, do, do, do work on the sales side. You could do like literally even a small IT shop. You know, if that's your space, mm-hmm. I think the same rules apply not just for that bullseye that are manufacturers, but for the rest of that sort of industrial space that's that surrounds that as well. So I think the smaller the company, the bigger the opportunity until you get too, too small. We'll just use a million bucks as a cutoff. I'm not saying that's too small or sure. not. But if you're at that level and you've got it, you've got a stable financial house and enough margins, yeah, maybe a couple million bucks in revenue. You need to be you need to be looking at something that's large enough to buy that really big first piece of automation equipment, mm-hmm. or to be making enough in product margin that you could withstand a blow. Like if you get a gut punch from the economy, you get a, a gut punch from something that goes horrifically wrong on a project. You need to be able to withstand that. So that probably starts, in my opinion, and maybe around a few million bucks a year. Okay. That is way too small for anybody to be interested in buying. Like your path is go to work for the guy and find a way to, to, to take that over. So if I heard you right, you just gave a couple litmus tests as to what company might be right. You could make yeah. a big investment in a piece of automation equipment. You've got enough margin on your product to yes. withstand like the economy taking a dip for a couple of years, things yeah. like that. You've got to be, you gotta be, you gotta be out of red ink. You've got to be stable and you have to understand you know, where that organization is relative to industry best practices, where you have opportunities, just because you're not at at an industry best practice standard doesn't mean that it's not a great opportunity for you. It just means that you need to be aware of it. You you need to, you know, once again, you need to make this as boring as humanly possible. Yeah. But you also brought up a point earlier where you're like, hey, if you're going to go into this, maybe you're going to introduce a new product to that business to help it scale, to take it to a new level. At least that's one thing that, that I heard is, uh, a way to, is that once you join the company, you're looking to take, or is it like kind of when you're looking at these companies, like when, when does that part come into the process? So I can tell you what I would do or what I have done in organizations that I've haven't had an ownership stake in. Yeah. I I think that we're unique as a St. Louis makes unique as a 501c3 in that I've also got an ownership stake in the industry. Mm-hmm. This is the only time I've ever not worked in the industry is this nonprofit. Yeah. So anybody who's interested in discussing this, I encourage you to reach out. But yeah. what I would do, the way that I would look at that is I would I would freeze myself in place for 100 days mm-hmm. unless I saw something that was an egregious safety violation or an egregious financial hemorrhage. 
I'd spend the first hundred days getting myself squared away in the business and understanding how we profitably do whatever it is that we already do mm. before I tried to figure out where the opportunities that were adjacent to that. I like the it. other way that I would look at those opportunities and say, hey, you know, here's an adjacent opportunity from a selling standpoint. The other way you could, I would then look for adjacent opportunities is I, I would say, what are the adjacent oppor- opportunities based on what our production capabilities are? You know, using the machinery that we have, using the relationships that we have, you know, who, who can we reach out to? Who can we touch? What can we sell that would be a, a nice add-on for us? You know, are there organizations that are maybe less than a million bucks that would be a good dovetail to that that mm-hmm. have absolutely no exit strategy whatsoever and aren't big enough to withstand that body blow? Mm-hmm. Could you absorb one of them? Yeah. You know, I mean, at that point, you've got, you've got a little bit more flexibility, but that's what I do. So spend 100 days just getting to know the business. When you say getting to know the business, what are the, the key aspects of that? So you, you have to start, you, in, unless you live for surprises, you need to start with the financials. Yeah. I mean, I get it. You reviewed them when you bought the business, but you really need to live them and understand. You're not going to make yourself an accountant. You're not going to make yourself a bookkeeper, but you need to understand at an exceptionally intimate level of detail exactly how they were compiled, yeah. and more importantly, how the assumptions that feed into them were made. Like the sort of stuff that the controller would do if you were at a large plant. Like, why and how are you making this allocation to cover plant overhead? Yeah. And what does that get written to? Is that is it the appropriate allocation? Where did it come from? Let me see the bills that back it. You need to understand the financial side of the house, first and foremost, number one. Number two, you're the employer. You're not everybody's friend, big brother, or dad. And nonetheless, you need to understand in a smaller organization exactly what every aspect of that smaller organization does. So I'd also encourage you to take some line time in production. Don't put yourself in an unsafe operating environment. If you're not a welder, don't weld. But put yourself out there doing something that is maybe lower skill or no skill or the uh, uh, that aligns with skills that you do have and understand what that looks like on the shop floor. Understand where the efficiencies are. You might want to consider installing cameras so that you can sort of manage those efficiencies a little bit better. Understand where improvements need to be made, um, you know, where you need to make changes to hit industry standards. And is there another way to go about this where you kind of get a vibe for this before you buy the business as well? Yeah. I'm, I, that's what I'm trying to think of. Like, what are the ways, whether it's, because this is something that I think could appeal to someone young, someone older, like there are a lot of opportunities, I think, for the entire age demographic of our audience when it comes to this topic. Yeah, so I'm late, I'm late middle age. I have an early middle age business partner. And on the acquisition that we did, I literally went and made account calls on behalf of an organization before I owned it. Oh, interesting. So, you know, if you're working with a private owner, there's a lot of stuff that you can do to push the needle, but you need to do that in order to understand what the opportunity and the potential is. Got it. Okay. So like even things that appear as though commodities could have something that makes them uniquely differentiable and gives you enough of an edge, stabilize the business, find new avenues, new channels, new products, et cetera. Can you share something you learned when you were doing that or something that surprised you about the business when you were going through that little like pre pre-acquisition, I need to learn about this business research? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. 100%. So instead of just looking at the simple, the profit margin. Hey, here's what a profit margin is selling to this customer, or this channel. I needed to take into consideration a whole bunch of other costs that get hidden easily. How many times does that customer call me per product purchased? Like, I found out that some of my lowest margin customers, straight line margin customers, were some of my highest touch, highest handhold customers. Mm. That had to change. Yeah. You know, other side of the coin, I found that some of the customers that we thought, ah, oh, you know, like, what could they possibly want from us? They're too big to do business with us, but they're doing business with us. It's turnkey. We're solving problems for them that we weren't fully aware of and or understood that they had on their side, and they never call, ever call. So we're, we're a high margin solution provider, and we're hardly getting any phone calls out of that deal. I need to find more of those guys and fewer of the other guys I without it. disclosing too much information. No, I, I love that advice, right? Because even if someone's listening to this today and they're in the manufacturing industry, but they have no intention of buying like a manufacturing company anytime soon, that's still very valuable for whatever business they're Truth. running. And it's a great piece of advice for, hey, limit the customers that are probably not helping you with your margin. It goes back to your initial point, right? Manufacturing should be boring. You want businesses that cash flow. Focus on the people that are yielding great business for you, but aren't as high touch. Yep. Was uh, the lesson that I heard from you. In, in yeah, that so I mean, like that was there. my personal learn right there. That was that was a deal. So I don't know, 
you know, you got to do what you got to do. I mean, I'm, I'm always interested in having that conversation with owners of small manufacturing businesses. You know, I started my career, like I said, I've never been outside of the industry except for St. Louis Makes. I started at really large consumer goods companies. I was at Colgate-Palmolive, ran a business for them, ran a business for the Toro company. So moved over to metal durables, worked on their B2B businesses for the longest time, worked at a private equity held portfolio company, and have been in smaller companies and in the entrepreneurial space. So it's, it's, it doesn't really matter where you are on that spectrum, but yeah. anybody up to a hundred million in net rev, you know, especially that below 30 million net rev space. That's where, that's where I'm the most comfortable. Well, I'm interested in those conversations. Let's, uh, let's kind of summarize this part of the conversation, right? We'll go back to one of the questions I asked a while ago. If I'm looking to buy one of these sub 30 million a year manufacturing companies, I got to know the business, got to make sure the finances are sound, spend 100 days learning what that business is doing, figure out where adjacencies might be before jumping in and making other changes. What are other very important how-tos when it relates to this process? And as you said earlier, it doesn't need to be, you're just going to go out there and buy a business. You could potentially work for this company for a while and create a succession yeah. plan. Is that also a path that, that you can... That's, that's a path. I yeah. mean, you know, working for them, working for them as an independent contractor, just saying, look, you know, I mean, like if I decide this isn't something that I'm going to do, I'm going to yeah. walk away from it. But, you know, here are the contracts and, you know, we pre-agree that I'll get like a little bogey on those contracts. You know, you can set, you know, independently owned and operated as long as you're within the health and safety role rules and the laws of the country, you can make whatever deal you want to with somebody that approaches you. So, you know, people tend to think very rigidly and they think, oh, you know, the business is for sale. Well, what does that mean? I mean, like that doesn't have to mean somebody comes in and writes you a check. You still have options. Great point. Great point. Yeah. It's not, this is not a black and white situation. We totally put ourselves in boxes and yeah. then we stay there and then we're mad because we can't get out of the boxes. Like until you get out of that box, you're not going to sell as much as you could. I've, it also got me thinking, like we're talking about, Hey, there's a for sale sign for this business as well. I bet there's scenarios where that for sale sign isn't sitting out there, but yeah. you're, you spend some time with them. You realize, Oh, they, they kind of want to get out of this. Like they're ready to be done. Like, I mean, so I touch so many we get St. Louis makes because we are unique in the country because we are actually you know it's a permanent part-time job for me mm -hmm. all of our volunteers are mid-career professionals that are used to running multi-million dollar bu budgets that come from industry it's like literally a group of middle-aged professionals that are very comfortable running different aspects of manufacturing businesses mm -hmm. so when we sit down and we have those conversations for St. Louis makes we'll get pulled into stuff that's really far afield and somebody will just point blank look at us and say hey you know here's what I want how would you do it yeah. I mean, so I've had people look me square in the eye and say, you know, boom, here's the deal. I've had other people say, well, I can't get out of the box. And I'm like, you don't even realize you're in a box. Here's what I do. Oh, yeah, I guess that's an option. I mean, like there are a lot of different ways to have that conversation. The, other, the, the only thing that I would add to, to sort of, you know, as an augment to that is we as human beings tend to gravitate towards our area of greatest strength. Mm -hmm. So I will always be a numbers driven sales guy and marketing guy. How do I grow the business, but how do I do it in a way that's not based on my opinion, but that's based on the facts I need to drive profit? If you ask, hey, how would you, what would you do with this business to an engineer? They're going to go to the production side, the design side, because that's what their training is. If the engineer's buying the business, the engineer needs to get comfortable with the reality that they need to find their counterpart on the sales side so that they got somebody that's thinking a little bit outside of the box and a lot more forward and a lot more math driven on the front end of the business and vice versa. If it's somebody that comes from that math, then they need to find somebody that's comfortable in the world of engineering math. Yeah. Because you can't, you know, like if you're a sales guy and you've got a, a problem in production efficiencies and you, you're not going to sell your way out of that hole, you're just going to make the hole bigger. Yeah. We talk a lot about co-founder dynamics on this show as well. Just making sure you've got that dynamics business partner huge. that can balance you out and, you know, strengths and weaknesses, all, all those type of things. Uh, do we feel that this next generation, Gen Z, millennials, et cetera, I, I mean, I think you and I were talking about this before we started, that we're going to start seeing more people going to trade schools, but, and we, this gets talked about till people are blue in the face, right? Go to more trade schools, you know, two-year associates degrees, et cetera. But the reality is, I feel like we're going to see people that go out there, work for these companies as a welder, someone on the floor that does all these things you're talking about and starts to learn the business and then becomes the perfect person 
to acquire them. I mean, yeah. do you see this? Like, I, I, I'm betting money that the, de- the 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 next generations are going to do more of this because it is such a lucrative area to get into that a lot of people aren't paying attention to right now. I think it's you know, so pendulums swing, right? And for every action, an equal and opposite reaction. So when we swing to college and away from tech school, the pendulum eventually will swing back. Mm-hmm. If the thing that I've always thought found is that if it applies in physics and engineering, there's generally a psychology counterpart to it. And mm. that's my psychology counterpart, right? We went too heavily into everybody's got to get a four-year degree, and it didn't make sense. Yeah. The interesting thing is, is it's almost like we live in two worlds that overlap concurrently right now from an educational standpoint, in the sense that education has never been concurrently both more and less important than ever. People are obsessed about getting into maybe three schools in this country, and they don't realize that the people that have been the most successful, by and large, historically, have been people that have just sort of learned what they needed to learn, where they needed to learn it, and have maximized those efficiencies. Go to your local engineering school, get an engineering degree. You want to learn how to weld? Go to your local welding school and get a welding degree. I've met guys who got technical degrees. That's the other thing, too, is is the primary reason, I've been told, the primary reason that people get rejected from tech schools is because they don't have the math to make it work. It's not like, you know, this, it's, you know, it's not like you're going to rehab. I mean, it's tech school. It's not going to be easy. So I've met people that have come out, have gone to work for small shops where they've had the opportunity to learn how to run a business. And then at some point, the owner presents them with an opportunity for some kind of a buyout or an out baton pass. Guys end up going, taking some night classes in accounting. The next thing you know, they've got a four-year degree. And they're making more money than any of their peers from the same age cohort because anybody that went anywhere else is not sitting there running a six to ten million dollar a year firm that's turning 20, 25, 30 points margin. So like it's weird, you know, because education's important. It's just not, you know, at the same time, it's not important in the ways that we obsess. I think the paradigm of education is evolving. At least that's the way I see it, right? There are new ways to get educated, a lot of free ways to get educated right now. And it's more I, this is maybe my opinion. It's more the practice of ongoing learning that's important and, and learning true. Oh, true. learning the right things as yep. well. And that's not to say ignore stuff that you otherwise wouldn't learn. I think there's value in developing that kind of that that diverse background, if you will, having perspectives on areas that are outside your immediate area of life focus. But yes, the things are evolving. And, and you're right, there are pendulums that swing for sure. We're definitely going the route of, hey, people should go to more trade schools right now. But I'm interested to see the way that, because I do think the fact that it's not black and white, it's probably not going to evolve the exact way we think it's going to evolve right now. That's just my bet. Yeah, there's that's the other thing too. You know, your own mental flexibility is really important because nothing, I, I saw something that somebody had posted, nothing is black and white. I saw something that somebody had posted recently that said, you know, if you look once again to, you know, math, physics, engineering, the universe isn't really good at binary. It's really mm-hmm. good at spectrum. Yeah. Like, so spectrum is just another way of saying everything's grayscale. So like, if you look at a sales problem, like, you know, it's all, it's going to be all or none. And you're not thinking of alternate ways to find, to, to solve the problem. I mean, then it's going to be none more often than it should be because you're not looking at that full spectrum of sales solutions. It's no different in engineering. I mean, I think you're 100% correct. It's going to evolve. It's going to evolve grayscale. We just got to be able to take advantage of it. The people to lock in and say, well, it's not like it was in the 50s. I mean, like, you know, like, well, good luck. Stay at home on the couch, you know, because there's, there's nowhere for them to go. Yeah. Great conversation across the board today. I have a completely different like final question I want to Uh-oh. ask you, because I think it's like a, a nice juxtaposition to the theme that we started with, right? Manufacturing should be boring. But you have told me, you said your philosophy is to live an interesting life. <laughs> you have told your kids, I want you to live an interesting life. My goal for you is to live an interesting life. Go into that a little bit. So uh, before I went to college, my personal rebellion was to get expelled from high school. And I responded, my mom responded to that uh, poorly as a gross understatement. And I did the only thing that anybody could reasonably be expected to do under the circumstances. I bought a one-way ticket to Europe and I stayed for two years. So that was in the 80s. I worked odd jobs across Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East for two years, came home and said, look, here's the deal. That might not have been the most responsible thing of me to do, but if you let me stay at home for free, I'll go to the community college. And that's what got me into college. So there was a lot of flexibility in my worldview. 
and there was a lot of learning in terms of how to solve problems, uh, you know, in order to find ways to make that work without visas or anything else, just jumping on a plane. So I've told my kids, I said, look, you know, the suburban box is everybody must go to college or whatever you're going to do right away. I said, you know, here's two things that uh, I feel strongly about. Number one, I think you should take a gap year. Number two, uh, I don't think our bloodline is particularly good with math. So a year by which I mean 36 months. And I don't care what you do as long as it's not fast food or in the central time zone. So I had one that hung out with her friends for a month after school and then she bugged off to Germany. And now she's trying to figure out what she can do over there. Got yeah. a job as an au pair, working a you know work in college. The the second one saw that and went over there for as a to Germany as an exchange student in high school, and has had the opportunity to work for a couple of national parks and has sort of filled in those gap experiences with these learning and growth opportunities. That's so cool. Has a plan to learn Spanish. You know, very proud of what she's doing as well. And then the third one is going in as a high school student. She graduated early in high school just to go over as an exchange student this year. So that's my story, and that's how it's it's followed through the next generation. Learn a foreign language. That's extremely important. There's, I had an American company one time that told me, they said, well, I don't understand it. We sent someone down to South America, and we didn't even get any leads. And I'm like, I look at the guy that they sent to South America. I'm like, dude, he doesn't even speak metric, and that's base 10. How hard can this possibly be? And on top of that, he doesn't even remotely speak Spanish. You're never going to sell anything. Mm-hmm. You know, figure out how to sell stuff in foreign cultures and languages. So I, I have to ask you, what's the oddest job that you worked in those two years where you you were bebopping around the other side of the world? Uh, I was talking about this job the other day with one of my kids. The oddest job that I had was I was on a kibbutz in Israel, and they had sheep. And I recognized immediately that if I could even oversee the sheep operation for one day, then technically, technically, I could lay claim to having on my work experience, having been a shepherd in the Holy Land. So, <laughs> so I positioned myself to be in charge of the, that part of the operation for, uh, you know, a, a couple of days, just long enough to, you know, hopefully not lose anything and uh, still be able to make that claim. So that's uh, that I could put that on my resume if I want to. I knew you were a manufacturing aficionado coming into this. I did not know that you were a shepherd in the Holy Land. I'm telling I mean, you. Just, just to sum that up, like you said, the value I think earlier was you learned how to solve problems. You got diverse experiences. What would be, what would be your pitch to the audience out there? That's like, Oh man, what, what can I learn by taking some risks and doing some things like that? Either themselves or or their kids. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I would encourage alternate paths, like alternate paths are not a bad thing. Like you can't sell to people you don't understand. So if you just think about it from a growth standpoint in a manufacturing space, understanding more about how different people think, whether it's cultural or whether it's a foreign language is really important, but it will serve you well. It will serve you well when you're trying to find ways to make those unique connections with other human beings. You know, and at the end of the day, I want to sound like I've reduced this whole thing to money. That's not it. But you got to stay sell, sell something to stay in business. So that's that's really what I would I would look at parents to encourage their kids. You know, maybe the gap year is something that be, should become a more normal thing in America, like it is in Australia and 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 Britain. You're not the first parent that's told me that they've been encouraging their kids to do that. So I see things evolving. I see things changing in cool. that regard. I mean, I I remember when I was getting my. Uh, engineering degree at Marquette right when I started. I don't know if this has changed or not. I know the curriculum there continues to evolve as well, but uh, the the individual from the college made a comment that it's like, oh, yes, and you don't have to take a, you know, a foreign language when you're getting an engineering degree, and everyone clapped and things like that. It's like, yeah, and I'm like, I don't know if that's a good thing that we should be celebrating, right? Like, I still... One of my lifestyle choices, I want to spend like a month or two down in Medellin, Colombia or Mexico City, one of those two spots, because then I can still work remotely, be on the same time zone. But I really want to learn like Spanish, like hardcore and part, you know, there are ways I can do that here. No doubt. I've done I've done some, you know, learning on my own and I've got travel Spanish under my belt at this point. But that's still a bucket list item I'm looking at. The immersion experience is really what makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, like you can get some, you can get kind of close in some parts of the United States, depending on, you know, what you do, how you handle it. But like going in country, there's nothing that beats that. Nothing that beats that. 
Learning Spanish and brushing up on my salsa so. dancing skills. I did more of that when I lived in Houston. Haven't haven't done as much recently. But uh, yeah. we've uh, this has been a great conversation cool, cool. today, Mark. I appreciate all the advice you've given. Um, not only manufacturing and business advice, but good life advice as well. Is there Thank any, you. any final thing you want to leave the audience with or something you wish I would have asked that hasn't come up? You know, the, the only thing that I would leave the audience with is Everything that I've learned, I've learned from somebody else. Like it's not like the knowledge spontaneously popped into my head. And the way that I've done that is taking calls where other people maybe wouldn't have. So if anybody's curious or interested, you know, my my name is my website. Just mm-hmm. remember that my first name spelled with a C, markbowers.com. And uh, all of my contact information is on there. Find it, reach out to me, and, uh, you know, text or, or email usually works best. Just put the podcast in the subject line so I know it's not junk mail. And let me know what you want to talk about. Love it. Well, for everyone out there, all the regular listeners know you can uh, find every way to connect with Mark over at the show notes, Mark, STL makes all those. So, hey, I just want to thank you for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. One of these times we got to grab a burger at O'Connor's. <laughs> but uh, I know we're going to lunch after this, so who knows where we end up. We'll, point, we'll see what so. happens. Appreciate it, Chris. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Mark. Okay, so if you want to connect with Mark Bowers, if you want to check out his website, if you want to learn more about St. Louis Makes, you can do that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 148. You know, I imagine it's clear at this point what Mark meant by, hey, your manufacturing business should be boring, making sure the business is operating in a profitable fashion, and very objectively looking at the areas where you can innovate your product, serve a new customer base, etc., I want to reiterate again that this doesn't just apply to a would-be entrepreneur that wants to do that at a manufacturing company they might acquire someday. Mark and I hung out for quite a while after this interview, grabbed lunch, did a bit of a driving tour to see some of St. Louis's hidden manufacturing gems, and he shared a great example of this off-camera. You know, you probably heard him talk about Clayton, make references to Clayton a couple times. Just to add some context if you're not familiar with it, Clayton is like the the white-collar job area of St. Louis. A lot of law firms are based out there. And he was saying that he was working with a painting company that changed their profit margins by, one, calling on businesses in Clayton and two, wearing button down shirts during their sales calls. That was it. Those were the tweaks. And I think it was something like they doubled their profit margins or something like that. So again, this applies to any business. Another thing that happened off camera that I want to be clear about is despite the theme of this episode saying that manufacturing should be boring, you got to have passion for the business that you're running in some way. Mark gave an example of, hey, could I market like a makeup company? He said, probably not. I- I- I'd hate that. I don't know anything about that industry. I don't like that industry. So he made the point that y- you got to have some level of interest in what you're doing, right? You can't just market anything. You can't run a business around anything. So some final tidbits to keep in mind as we wrap things up. As we get ready to get out of here this week, I want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Traction. And I also want to give you a call to action one more time. If you learn something from this episode, if there was a great takeaway that you want to share with your friends, your colleagues, your network, whomever it is, well, hey, share a link to this episode on social media, on LinkedIn, tag me, I'll engage with it, or just email it to someone, right? Get this on more people's radars. If this helped you out, you know it's going to help someone out in your network as well. So thank you as always for listening. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you here next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.